We've got a fairly lengthy passage today, or two passages. We're starting in 2 Samuel chapter 1, going from verse 1 to 16, and then we're going to flip forward to chapter 4 from verse 1 and go through partway into chapter 5. So you can follow along on the screens or your devices. Okay, so we're back starting at 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked, tell me. He said, Two men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So moving forward to chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Barna, and the other recap. They were sons of Rimmon the Burathite, from the tribe of Benjamin. Biroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Biroth fled to Gitaim and have lived there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Barna, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Barna slipped away. They'd gone into the house while he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. 
This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king of, against Saul and his offspring. David answered Recap and his brother Barna, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziglag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now demand his blood from his hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood in the past. While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. Thanks, Trudy. Morning, everybody. Good to see you all again. My name's Coops. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Mobbury. And uh, let me add my welcome to, uh, to, um, to Sally's, um, to all of you at home and everyone here, and particularly if you're new or visiting us this week. Great to have you all here um, along with us this morning. Now, if you've got a Bible or a device here this morning, please uh, bring it out because I'm going to be speaking through the first five chapters or four chapters in a bit and we didn't read them all so I'll do my best to make it clear as we go Um, but if you do have a device or a Bible it'd be great just to have that out on your laps because I'm going to refer to um, parts of uh, those chapters, even the ones we didn't read as we go. So uh, before we begin, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can meet that we can hear from your word today. Father, we do ask that you'd help me to deliver your message faithfully and we pray that you would help us to hear what you have to tell us this morning, that we'd understand it and that you would apply it to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've got to know um, quite a few of you uh, quite well over the time that we've been here and those of you that know me uh, would probably have realised that I have quite a love for the game of cricket now, I know that we've got some sporting matches coming up that Ben's arranged. If you've got cricket arranged, Ben, I will be there. And as I grew up, um, I played a fair bit of cricket. I was never particularly good at it, but I enjoyed it. And I used to watch um, the international series like avidly, right? So as a teenager, I'd be in front of the one-day internationals. And I remember Dean Jones as he would come out to bat. Now, those of you who remember Dean Jones, he was like a rabbit between the wickets. He had a phenomenal strike rate and he could turn a losing match around you know, in an instant. He was just phenomenal to watch. And this year, Dean Jones turned 59 and he was in India and he was commentating a cricket series over there and completely unexpectedly, he just dropped dead in his hotel from a heart attack. It was really sad, completely unexpected. And his colleagues that were being interviewed after that time said, you know, he was... He was always working and planning and trying to determine how to make this uh, broadcast he was involved in better and better, making plans for the future. And then it was just all cut short. 
And, you know, I was reading that news feed over breakfast and I said to my kids uh, that this had happened to, to Dean Jones and they didn't even know who he was. You know, this was a guy who, in my generation at least, he had made this huge name for himself. And then one generation later, it was all forgotten. And it just made me think, you know, we're not really masters of our own destiny, are we? Not really, when you think about it like that. All of our human efforts, you know, all of our planning. And at the end of it all, it just doesn't last. It doesn't endure past our own lifetime. That's not to say we shouldn't be responsible about how we approach life. You know, the, the planning that we might put in place. Of course, we should do those things. But it only makes sense if we do it with what does endure. By trusting the Lord. He's what endures. Now, in Dean Jones's case, I don't know what his relationship was with the Lord. But in the passage that we've just read and in some of the segments that I'm going to touch on in the middle, we're going to see a number of men who try to make their own futures. They try to chart their own destinies and they try to do it without God. They're trusting in their own efforts for their own futures. And in the end, what we see actually is that God's plan to bring his kingdom is the only plan that succeeds. Because it's God's plan. And everything else comes to nothing. And so the challenge that I want us, or the question really, I want us to ask ourselves today is where is our trust? Is it fully in God's plan? Is it fully in God's kingdom and his king? Or is it somewhere else? Because if it's somewhere else, then it can only come to nothing. Deep down, deep down in our hearts, what is it that we trust in? That's the question. So this book of 2 Samuel that we're, uh, we're just starting to look at, let's situate that um, in the context of the Bible. So remember way back in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, God's created all things, he's created us, he's created all of the world. Adam and Eve rebel against God and creation's corrupted as a result. Despite all of that, God promises Abraham to bring blessing to the world through a nation descended from Abraham. He redeems that nation from slavery in Egypt He brings them to the promised land and then they repeatedly turn away from God and ultimately they demand a king so they can be just like the nations all around them. And so God gives them Saul, King Saul. That's the book of 1 Samuel. He gives them Saul, but Saul fails to rule God's way. And so at the end of 1 Samuel, as we move into our book 2 Samuel this morning, God gives them a king that God chooses, King David. And early on, David looks like he might be the king that will rule over God's kingdom and rule over God's people, God's way. Now, eventually we'll find that he does reveal his own human sinfulness and it's clear that um, these promises that God's made, they'll be fulfilled another way. But today we're at the very beginning of King David's rule. We pick it up from 2 Samuel chapter 1. King Saul's dead. David's been anointed by God and for now it looks like God might... uh, It looks like David might have what it takes to be God's chosen king. And so initially as we look at this passage and what it's got to say, I'd like us to think about what it says about God's kingdom. Because it says that God's kingdom will come and nothing that humans can do will stop it. Now as um, we've heard earlier, uh, 
back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David was anointed by God. There it is up on the screen. So he's been chosen by God. And as this passage begins, as I said, King Saul's dead. David becomes king. But in chapter 2, now we didn't read chapter 2, but in chapter 2, it becomes apparent actually that initially David only rules over one tribe, only over Judah initially. Now there's 12 tribes of Israel. He rules over one of them initially. This is Judah. And the reason he only rules over one tribe is that Abner, he's the guy that commanded Saul's old army, instead of recognising David as king, Abner opposes David. And what he does is he takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king over the other 11 tribes of Israel. Okay, so David ruling over Judah, Ishbosheth. With Abner alongside, he's got the other 11 tribes under his control. So David here, he is seriously outnumbered and inevitably there's conflict. So Joab, he commands David's army. He meets Abner by the pool of Gibeon. That's in chapter 2, verse 12. Let's take a look at that. So chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Abner, son of Ner... Together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. So, if we move to the map... We're going to move to the map... There it is. No, we saw it. Did you get it? You're seeing different to what they're seeing. Turn around to see up there. Oh, yeah, there we go. I was, there's a screen, if, if you're not aware, there's a screen here that I'm looking at. It's not like I'm staring off into the distance. <laughs> I might let you drive it from down at the desk. Is that easier? Now we're looking at a map. <laughs> you're looking at a map I'm looking at another screen that's got some verses you know I'm going to put this over here I won't be tempted to use that so we're all looking at a map now and uh, what's happening here is that Abner commanding Saul's old army he comes down from Mahanaim see up there on the north he comes down and Joab commanding David's army he's come up from Hebron now presumably he's come up to head them off right and they meet at this, uh, this pool of Gibeon and there's a battle, that's what chapter two, chapter 2 describes, there's a battle. Joab ends up with the larger body count and he forces Abner to run. Okay, And so there's this war that continues from there. And the narrator tells us on the next slide that Saul's house grows weak and David grows strong. Now that's not what you'd expect, is it? He's numerically superior, Abner. Tremendously superior, and so you wouldn't expect David to be growing stronger while Saul's growing weaker, but that's what happens because God is at work. See, we can see here that God's plan is going to be fulfilled, and all these human efforts, they're not going to prevent it. And later on, as we get into chapter 3, we'll see this on the next slide, there is this conflict that arises between Ishbosheth and Abner. So they have this argument. And so Abner transfers his loyalty and the rest of the tribes of Israel to David. And he makes this comment. He talks about himself in the third person for some reason. May God deal with Abner, he says, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath. 
See, now Abner thinks it's him completing God's plan for God. You know, it's like he's sort of saying, I'll do what God promised for David. It's like he needs to do God a favour or something. But it's not really Abner, is it? God always intended David to be king. So despite all of Abner's previous planning, all his scheming, all his attempts to grab power and control, God's plan was always going to be fulfilled. And at the end of our reading, uh, which we heard uh, from Trudy, do you remember the men who killed Ishbosheth in his bed? It was an evil act committed by those men, trying to advance their own interests. And yet, despite all of that, despite all the politics, the human wills, the human decisions, it all finishes up exactly as God intended when he anointed David, which we'll see on the next slide. David as king, bringing unity to God's people. Just as many years later, Jesus is born of David's line, the son of God, God's plan coming to completion to save us from our sin of ignoring him and bringing unity and peace. And God promises Jesus will return, bringing the faithful to resurrected life and that all of this will be over. His plan completed. And we live in uncertain times, don't we? We sure do with pandemics, China's influence in the South Pacific. I read recently President Trump's comments about the transfer of power in the US if he loses the election. But like the men in our passage, politics, human manoeuvring, all that stuff, it won't prevent God from bringing his plan to completion. And isn't that for us just so reassuring? Jesus will return. His kingdom will come. And God's plan will be completed just like the promise that God made to David. He'll deliver on that. And in a world that's so uncertain, that is the one thing that we can ultimately trust. Now, God's king here has some very specific characteristics, and I'd like us to take some time to look at those as well as contrast them to some of the other characters in our passage. So as I've said, God anointed David sometime before our passage begins here in 2 Samuel. But David doesn't force that issue, does he? He gets the message that Saul's dead in chapter 1. But he doesn't try and take over Israel with a show of force. He could have done that. He had a whole group of armed men with him. But instead, in chapter 2, verse 1, he asks the Lord what he should do. And, And notice here on the screen, he doesn't ask just once. He asks twice. Shall I go, he says. And then he says, you know, where shall I go? See, David is a king who trusts and is obedient to the Lord. And that's quite a contrast to Abner, isn't it? Abner knew that David was God's chosen king. We'll see that on the next slide. He knew that David was God's chosen king. And he knew what God had promised David. But at the beginning... He didn't treat David as God's king. He went to war against David. He didn't trust. He wasn't obedient. And at least in the first half of the passages that we're looking at today, he rejected God and he rejected God's king. And on the next slide, we see ultimately here in chapter 3, Abner does eventually return to David. He turns to David. David reconciles with him here in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
He prepares a feast for him. And he sends Abner away in peace. So despite everything Abner has done, David reconciles with him. Because David is a king of grace. He forgives and he reconciles and he brings peace. That's the type of king he is. Now not only that, but he is also a king of justice. On the next slide we'll see 1 Samuel chapter 26 where David says, Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So if you cast your mind back to our reading right at the beginning, remember the Amalekite man right at the beginning of the reading there? He fronts up to David, he claims he's killed Saul. Saul's previously been anointed by God, so this man is guilty and David judges him. And at the end of our reading, those who murdered Saul's son Ishbosheth in cold blood, they're judged by David. So we can say David is also a king of justice. He is a godly, just and forgiving king who brings peace. Don't you think that he sounds like a pretty good leader? He is a godly, just and forgiving king who brings peace. And so you've got to ask, who wouldn't want to live under a leader like that? Well, most of the characters in this passage, actually. Initially, Abner didn't. He went to war against David, as I said, at least for a while. Joab, the commander of David's army, eventually he kills Abner, actually, without David's consent, in disobedience to David, in vengeance. And the other 11 tribes of Israel, all of the tribes other than Judah, they followed Ishbosheth and Abner initially. But once Abner's dead, on the next slide we see Ishbosheth loses courage and all of those 11 tribes of Israel become alarmed. See, they'd placed their trust in something other than God's king, and now they see that it's come to nothing. It hasn't endured. So instead of living obediently under a just and forgiving king who brings peace, they'd rebelled against God's king. They'd tried to take control themselves and reject God. And it brought disorder and suffering and death and judgment. So that's the contrast that I want us to see there. Justice, mercy, peace on one hand and the rejection of God's king on the other bringing disorder and suffering and death and judgment. That's the contrast. Now if that's the choice between, if there's two choices there and God's kingdom can't be stopped anyway, no one would choose to rebel, would they? Doesn't make sense. Especially us, right? We're on this side of the cross. We know that Jesus is God's perfect king. We know that Jesus perfectly judges, forgives, unites and brings peace. And so surely that's what we would choose. But often we don't. And it's because some of the things that are in the hearts of the characters in this passage are in our own hearts. Remember back at the beginning of our reading, the Amalekite man. He brings David news of Saul's death. He claims that he killed Saul himself. He's looking for a reward from David. Now, if you read the end of 1 Samuel, it doesn't actually record the Amalekite as killing Saul. So whether he's lying or whether he actually did kill Saul, he's compromised either way, isn't he? 
See, he thought David could be his king, that he could participate in David's kingdom, but that he didn't need to be like David. See, he thought he didn't need to seek to be righteous, to be morally upright. But God's king doesn't reward that type of compromise. And Jesus is God's anointed king given for us. He's better and more perfect, more obedient to God than David ever was. And he doesn't reward moral compromise. And so we mustn't fool ourselves that we can seek his kingdom without also seeking his righteousness. See, nothing that's done that is morally wrong will ever bring any benefit to us. We can't seek Jesus and also unrepentedly seek unrighteous behaviour, sexual immorality, drunkenness, untruths, whatever it is. If we truly seek Jesus from our heart, then it will be shown in how we attempt to resist those things, to put those things away. Not successfully all the time, uh, not successfully all the time, of course, but with repentant hearts, turn to Jesus. And the situation with Joab is a little similar. Joab killed Abner, even though Abner was reconciled and forgiven by David. He killed in peacetime out of vengeance. And on the next slide we see when that actually happened in chapter 3, David was innocent. Chapter 3, verse 37. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. So can you see what Joab's done here? See, Joab, he's part of David's kingdom, but his actions don't reflect his king in this case. He wasn't pursuing his king's interests. He was pursuing his own self-interest, and in this case, it was vengeance. But he should have reflected his king's interest, don't you think? If David's his lord, then David's interests should be his interests. Like he should obey David. But the actions that he took that day, they weren't in line with David at all. And it's a reminder, really, that if we claim Jesus as our king then we've got to be careful that our actions reflect him. That the decisions that we make reflect our king's interests, Jesus' interests, rather than our own. So when we're faced with a decision to make, you know, we ask first, what's the best interests, what, are, what is in the best interests of Jesus? What's in the best interests of Jesus' kingdom? Before we ask, what's in our own best interests? Or Abner. Abner and those other 11 tribes of Israel, for most of our chunk of passages, they followed another king, Ishbosheth, not God's king. And on the next slide, we see that uh, actually Abner knew that Israel had for some time they'd wanted to turn to David as their king. But Ishbosheth and Abner had stood between David and those 11 tribes. And maybe they didn't have the courage to take David as their king. Maybe it was just too difficult for them to take David as their king. Maybe it was just too costly for them to take David as their king. So does anything stand between us and God's king? It can be incredibly costly, can't it, in terms of our friends or our careers, sometimes even our own family, to turn to God's king, Jesus. 
There's lots of things that we might value more than God. And if so, they stand between us and God. So is there anything standing between us and Jesus? We mustn't let anything get in the way. Because in the end, God's plan will be completed. And we can thank God for that because it's a plan that brings forgiveness to us through Jesus. That's God's solution to this problem with our hearts. So remember, I've been talking about this guy, Abner, and he knew at some point that Israel's elders wanted to turn to David, but he didn't change course until he had that argument with Ishbosheth. And then when he finally decides it's time to switch sides, well, it's pretty good timing because David's house is getting stronger and Saul's house is getting weaker. And it's then that Abner says, yeah, you know what, I'll do for David what the Lord promised. Even though he knew far, far earlier that David was God's anointed. So his motives are questionable, that's for sure. Very self-serving guy, Abner. But David still becomes Abner's king. And despite everything Abner had done, all the planning, all the scheming, all the conflict, David forgives him and reconciles with him. And so if Abner, with all of that history, all of his motives, if he can be forgiven, then how much more for us through Jesus Christ himself? That is God's solution. God's established his kingdom through someone more perfect more obedient than David, the man Jesus Christ, his son. And through him, he'll bring order, he'll bring perfection. That's God's love. It saves us from ourselves and from the disorder and the chaos that sin brings to his creation. And he did it through the crucifixion and the resurrection of his son, who he established as the king and the lord of everything. And he only asks that we believe that he did that for us, taking the punishment that we deserve on himself for ignoring God. That's how he brings forgiveness. That's how he brings reconciliation. And that's how his kingdom comes. In God's kingdom there will be peace. And it will be brought by Christ. And of all our own plans. And our own aspirations. And our own efforts. That's the one thing that we can be absolutely sure of. God will complete his plan. He will bring the faithful to him in reconciliation and in peace and so for those of us who have accepted jesus as our king we must continue to turn to him and search our own hearts for the times that we're abners or we're joabs or like those following ishbosheth or even like the amalekite man and turn back to him with repentant hearts knowing that we're already forgiven through faith in what he's done for us and for anyone who hasn't yet accepted Jesus as their king, then I want you to know that he brings something so much more that can be found in this world. He brings peace and order and he brings life. Accept him as king and make the decision to experience all of those things for yourself. Let's pray and ask God for his help with all of those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the message that King David gives to us and for the signpost that he is to Jesus Christ. Father, please help us to come to Jesus with a repentant heart always, seeking only your goodness. And 
Father, we pray that you would help us to keep nothing between us. Father, help us to trust you and your judgment, being always grateful that our own wrongdoing against you is forgiven by your wonderful gift of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.